Good day, radio listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, my name is Jonathan, and we have a special guest with us all the way from the Seattle area up in the great state of Washington. We have Jay Stringer with us. So, Jay, thank you for joining us this time. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Honored to be here. Well, Jay, I'm I'm glad that you were able to join us. I, I'm excited about some of the things you're doing. Um, I would love for you first to just kind of introduce yourself to our, our listeners and viewers and let them know a little bit about kind of what landed you in the in the seat that you're in now and kind of the ministry that you're doing and the counseling. And then I'd love for us to shift gears into some of the research that you've you've done. So uh, just let our listeners know who you are. Sure. Uh, my name is Jay Stringer. I am a licensed mental health counselor and an ordained minister in Seattle, Washington. And one of the reasons why I really chose to do ministry and be a therapist, um, or I should say a minister and be a therapist, is uh, when I was in graduate school, just beginning to get a sense of what actually changes the human heart. And I realized that as a pastor, I was really in love with theology, but then in the midst of crisis and a lot of my own heartache and a lot of uh, just harm, uh, I realized that a lot of my theology felt really impotent uh, to really guide me to real heart change. Uh, And so that was so much of the point of kind of getting into my own story, getting into my own brokenness and just realizing that... um, I can't take anyone further than I have been myself. And so if I am deeply ashamed of sexual matters in my own past, if I don't know how to address places of heartache, places of trauma in my own life, that's going to be really near impossible to do effective work with people. Uh, So I would say kind of just during grad school was really the time where I I really wanted to address um, who am I? How did I get here? Um, And the more that I followed that journey, uh, it went through a lot of (laughs) surprises uh, and found myself the city of Seattle back in 2009 was starting something called the John School. And this was a program for men who had been arrested for soliciting women in prostitution throughout the Seattle area. And the church that I was a part of at the time uh, was doing a lot of work with uh, the homeless and sexually exploited men and women in the North Seattle area. And they knew that we had a pretty faithful presence up there and said, is there any way that someone from your church could come in to talk about the neighborhood impact of sex buyers? And so that was my initial invitation into this world. And soon, soon thereafter, kind of got the reputation as the guy who works with sex buyers as a therapist. Um, And so from there, that was kind of the the launch of my therapy career was really addressing what I refer to as unwanted sexual behavior. And that's really any sexual behavior that people participate in that the end that at the end of the day they wish was not true. So that mm-hmm. that could be the use of pornography and affair buying sex. Well, let me just say, first of all, I, I commend you for actually responding to that invitation because most people would run for the hills if they were invited to speak on that particular topic to be able to try to give speak any kind of uh you know uh anything into that in terms of being able to say hey what kind of impact does sex buying have on a on a community um first of all uh that's an interesting question actually and Mm -hmm. that's something that doesn't seem to be at least you know historically and when i'm saying historically i mean maybe the last 50 years doesn't seem to be something that has a ton of research done in that 
field. Mm -hmm. It seems like, especially even in recent years, so much of the research has been geared towards pornography because that seems to be the driving, you know, sexual engine Mm -hmm. um, in our day. I mean, in terms of a a commodity or commerce. And so, so what was that like to then try to bring research to this issue regarding sex buying? Uh, Mm Because I know that also then extends into the trafficking field, but it also has a connection to pornography, right? So what does that middle ground look like in terms of the sex buying aspect? Absolutely. So one of the reasons why I decided to do research is that there, pornography is definitely much more research than buying sex. Uh, Part of some of the studies that have come out, I think out of Minneapolis is that uh, most sex buyers tend to be disproportionately upper middle class white males. Uh, so it's really an issue that we are dealing with as, you know, it, I think white married men are actually some of the kind of greatest sex buyers. They've used a term called Johns throughout the decades, mm-hmm. and that's to refer to kind of just that concept of any man could be buying sex. Um, but that was one of the main reasons that I wanted to do research around originally is that we actually have data to kind of say how many men buy sex. We have data as to how many people are watching porn. For instance, the Barna study revealed that about 64% of youth pastors, uh, somewhere in the range of 57% of our pastors are using pornography either presently or in the course of their ministry. But what we don't really have data on is the why. So what's actually driving these men to buy sex? What's driving men and women to have affairs? And what's actually driving us to pursue pornography? And so that was kind of the initial entry point to do research is to say, um, we really need to have a better understanding of what the what's driving this behavior instead of just saying it's a really prevalent <laughs> cancer in our time. And so as a therapist, that's what I began to see is that people were coming into my therapy practice with virtually no understanding of what freedom from unwanted sexual behavior had meant. They were told to stop lusting. They had been told to pursue accountability, but most of them had never really been invited into make meaning out of the behaviors that they were pursuing. Um, And so that's what I realized a couple of years ago is that unless we change the conversation and really invite people into what are the stories uh, that bring you to this place, then we're going to continue to consign a lot of people to the same struggles that they've been in for literally decades. Yeah, when we when we talk a lot of times about the 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 underpinnings for a life of transformation, it's one thing for us to tell somebody from a Christian worldview, hey, it's Christ, mm-hmm. right? It's, okay, well, great. Yeah. And then even talking about maybe a grace-based approach or dealing with mm-hmm. those kinds of things. What we find is that if, if, if the full context of meaning of all of those terms and those relationships are not understood, mm-hmm. typically people will gravitate more towards what I typically call a sin management system. Mm-hmm which yeah. is really high behavior modification focus and essentially saying, you better just be the hamster on the wheel. You got to keep doing these practices over and over again. And then, you know, you wake up a year or two, three years down the road and go, but something fundamental is not changing in my life. Mm. Like there are these externals that, yes, there's things that are, it's kind of like the diet treadmill, right? You know, it's like, okay, I'm I'm externally not, you know, dumping sugar down my throat. 
Yes. But something fundamental is still not changing within me in terms of how I'm doing life or understanding why I keep wanting to dump sugar down my throat. And so to me, it sounds like what you've done is you sort of lifted the hood on that Mm -hmm. and been able to start to say, maybe there are some actual connections we can make that we don't have to just throw a dart in the dark to try Mm -hmm. to see if we can hit, well, let's try this and let's try that. And then maybe this will work again, kind of how we typically deal with any kind of uh, compulsive behavior. A lot of times it can feel like either just piecemeal or a hit and miss approach to try this, try this, try this, try this. So well said, Jonathan. So what did, what did you find in your research? First of all, set our, set our listeners up for what you did to try to find some of these answers. Okay. Sure. Uh, so I created a, a research survey that looked at, uh, your relationship with your mom, your relationship with your dad, did they tend to be really emotionally enmeshed? Were they really rigid? Were they disengaged from your life? Then I looked at what are the formative stories that have marked your life from childhood? So that could be uh, the introduction of pornography, other forms of sexual abuse, abandonment, divorce, bullying. And then I looked at what were men and women dealing with in the present from depression to a lack of purpose uh, to uh, anxiety. And then what I did with all of that is then to say, uh, what is the type of fantasy life or sexual behavior life that emerges out of that? Mm-hmm. And so what I did is there's uh, some well-known research that kind of gets into the top 20 search for terms on the internet within pornography. And so what I wanted to do was to get a sense of what were the specific fantasies that people pursued. So that could have had to do with uh, teenagers, uh, college students, blondes, to um, different categories revolving around a mother, to aggressive sex acts. And I really wanted to get a sense of how, how does our story, past and present, shape and in many ways predict the types of behaviors and fantasies that we pursue. So I asked about 100 questions. I got some of that survey out to some of the main leaders in the sexual integrity world and uh, had a team out at uh, New York University handle a lot of the analytics to it. And the, the results that we found were really, I would say, remarkable. I know I'm biased, but I was I was really well, now before you yeah be, before we get to the results part I have to we have to I have to back up and pick a few things apart here because you know <laughs> sure. some of the things you just said to those in any audience that might have uh, so a little bit more of a conservative history or things mm-hmm. you just freaked them out you just caused them to like pass out when you said things mm-hmm. like I wanted to know about specific fantasies I wanted to know about certain brokenness in relationships. And some, yeah. on the one hand, I think some of our listeners, you know, it's like, hey, you can kind of get the un- the idea of, well, let's talk about the mom and dad wounds and some of those kind of things because yeah. that's a that's a that's a relatively common and effective therapeutic method mm. of being able to say, listen, we didn't we didn't start out as thirty year old men or women. It's like, mm-hmm. listen, we all have a history of a family of origin, and there are things that matter in there. But yeah. to shift then and to say. But are there things that we can actually discover within the various sexual fantasies? Mm-hmm. Help our help our listeners understand why would you go there? Because you know it seems like aren't you aren't you mm-hmm. opening Pandora's box? Or why would you look at your mm-hmm. lustful thoughts? Why would you look at those things when, mm-hmm. in fact, for most of us, we've been taught in our Christian worldview to flee, to run, to yeah. not look at those things? So so how do you? 
help us understand. So glad you paused me. That's a that's a great distinction. So I mean, I start with the premise that that the God of the universe, the God of the scriptures, is deeply, deeply curious about the human heart. And so whenever we see the God interacting with people throughout the scripture, so much of what God does is to ask people very curious questions. So to Adam, it's Adam struggling with sin. And he says, Adam, where are you? Um, when Hagar has just been traumatized by the, the patriarch and matriarch of our faith, she hits the road in the desert. And that's where the angel of the Lord finds her to say, where do you come from and where are you going? Mm-hmm. Same thing with Jacob. When Jacob is really struggling with like his identity and his name, God says, um, Jacob, what's your name again? Um, and so I believe from a very fun- fundamental place that God is really curious about not just our sexual brokenness, but actually the specifics of our sexual brokenness as well. So we see this in the New Testament when Jesus kind of takes on sarks, which is the New Testament word for flesh. So God kind of identifies and, and inhabits the places in our lives that are filled with brokenness. And so I kind of start with that premise that that Jesus is not ashamed of my thought life, um, but is deeply curious about why that particular fantasy uh, begins to capture my heart. And I think that's important to say because, you know, we, we hear, um, man, one of our core values is grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also along with that, one of our core values is truth. And we know that the fullness of the embodiment of both of those is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I think yeah. sometimes what we have the tendency to do is, is if, we, if we push too hard towards the truth side, we ignore the brokenness, right? Because then yes. it's all about, hey, we got hard lines, we got hard rules. If mm-hmm. we push too far on the grace side, what ends up happening is we, we start, sort of drown in introspection to the point that we're not actually even seeing the truth. So that's why I do, I love the fact that you, you talk about how when Jesus came, he came in the flesh. The idea that he actually was wrapped in the, the very container that we have all these struggles. And yes. part of that container was he had a brain. He had, yeah feelings, he had emotions, he had thoughts. And it's like all of those things are part of what it means to be human. And so if we're going to have, I mean, if he is the way, the truth, and the life, and therefore our only hope for transformation, mm-hmm. then my goodness, we can look to him, right? And, and realize that he's, yes. he's wanting to dig into every part of our being, including maybe the darker parts. So well said, Jonathan. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to ask you then... Um, you you found some of these predictors, right? Which I'm yep. curious about, and I think our audience would be very curious about that. You you your research started to indicate in a very tangible way that there can be some specific predictors for whether or not a person is going to get entangled in porn or view pornography, yes. right? So why yes. don't you share some of the findings that you had there? Sure. So one of the the biggest findings that we found, and this was only true of men, was that for every every unit of a lack of purpose that a man felt, he increased his pornography viewing by a factor of seven. So another way of saying that is men were seven times more likely to pursue pornography uh, when they were feeling a lack of purpose in their life. So that, that meant that these men looked back at their life and saw a lot of failure. They felt really unmotivated in life. They didn't know where they wanted to go. They didn't feel like the work that they did had any meaning. Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening to these men is that I did a Likert scale, which is just a fancy uh, way of saying like a zero to five to no extent. 
to very great extent. And the more of a lack of purpose that they felt, the more porn. And so one of the ways that I think about this is is really the issue of um, that pornography is is one of the greatest squatters of our time. I, I absolutely think it's a, a moral issue. I think that it ruins marriages. It, it ruins so many aspects of our own integrity. Uh, but a couple years ago, I was uh, moving out of my house in North Seattle. We, a developer had come through from the rental unit that we were in, wanted to demolish our house. And so we had about two weeks to get out. And so we got the moving truck, uh, packed up our belongings, and then we had left some baby stuff in the basement, like baby strollers, baby walkers. And I said to my wife, I'll just come back a couple days from now and I'll get uh, those belongings back. So we move into our new rental uh, and then a couple days later, I'm back at the house and I'm walking back to our old house and I, I just start getting this really, really ominous feeling over me. And so I decide to look up and behind this curtain is this guy that's staring at me, shaking his head. And what he essentially says is, get the heck out of here. Wow. And I had this feeling of like, you know, those moments of do I call the cops? Do I go in? Do I confront him or do I <laughs> get the right. heck out of here? Um, and so I decided, you know, that baby walker that's probably going to go to Goodwill in a couple of days, not worth my life. Right. Uh, and I was driving back. And what struck me about that scene was that he knew that we were gone out of our house for two to three days before he started squatting. Mm. And to me, that has so much to do with just the reality of men's lives that if we don't know who we are and we don't have integrity with pursuing our own identity, squatters like pornography, even television, from what we know from kind of Nielsen net ratings is that the average American watches about five hours of television a day. And so we have all of these places in our society that really give us as men and women places to check out, places to not engage our life. Um, and so just that that issue of a lot of us begin to say, don't watch porn. And we say no to that and we get accountability. But if we're not simultaneously focused on who we're becoming and what we want out of our lives, then in many ways that struggle with pornography becomes necessitated in our life. You know, it makes me think of when, when Jesus was talking about um, sort of cleaning your house spiritually. And he's like, hey, you know, that, that you get rid of that one demon, right? Mm-hmm. And now you have an empty house that you're doing nothing with. You're not doing, you're not filling it with the yeah. right things. Well, guess what? It's a matter of time. He comes back with seven more. Mm-hmm. And so then there's a whole new set of problems you have because during the time that you had sent away what was negative and bad, it's like, yeah. what are you doing now to, to refill with what you need, you know? And so um, I want to yeah. ask you, too, you you talked about, um, you know, this gets back a little bit to the issue of, of looking at fantasy. Yeah. And one of the things that you, you, you invite your clients to do is what you call listening to their lust. Yes. Now, what on earth do you mean by that? Because, again, that's one of those things— you know, not that I think you're trying to come up with stuff just to like <laughs> cause people to sit up straight, but that's not the normal like lingo that we hear in even recovery environments or things like that. So tell yep. our listeners what you mean by sure. that. Yeah. And and I think what you had mentioned before is really important distinction that I, I'm not inviting people to a carte blanche of just whatever you want to fantasize about, think about it, get into it. But what I, what I found as a clinician is that 
people were struggling and having the same issues of accountability. Like they, they had met with their accountability partner for 16 years, 20 years, and they kept failing or every few years and no one had ever invited them to what is this fantasy that is capturing your heart? Mm -hmm. Um, what, what is it about that type of pornography that you tend to go to more than any others? Um, and so that was really the kind of the impetus to check of what are people actually looking for and that the listening to your lust approach, um, is really the, the invitation to say, why, why do I have a soul tie with this type of imagery, this type of video? What is it about that scene that's really capturing my heart? And so what my research found is that um, different behaviors or different fantasies, again, whether that had to do with, um, in my research, I use the category of power. So um, there were men that wanted power over women. So they, they pursued a type of sexual fantasy that had to do with a race that suggested to them some type of subservience, a woman with a smaller body type, blonde hair, college students. And so what my research found is that if that was your sexual fantasy, you tended to have a pretty predictable story. Uh, you grew up with a very strict father. Um, you were dealing with a lot of futility in your life and you were dealing with really, really high levels of shame. And so what that indicated to me was that if so much of your life has the sense of, I don't have any power in my life, I don't know where I'm going, I feel a lot of shame, and I've had authority figures in my life invade me, dominate me, that's going to set up a type of sexual fantasy life where you can actually have power in the porn that you pursue. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of that invitation to listen to your lust is to say, if you're dealing with a lot of futility and a lot of lack of power, pornography becomes really appealing to men because there's no there's no possibility of failure there, that you can get exactly what you want when you want it, and you don't have to answer to anybody at that given time. Mm -hmm. And so that's one, one of those examples of what it means to listen to your lust, to be able to say, if that's your fantasy, there's something about that that's trying to show that you don't know how to find power except through in the except through with your pornography use. Yeah, and I love this because you know it's it's interesting how literally in every other aspect of our life we will spend mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of time um, assessing what is broken in mm -hmm. order that we might fix it. Think about your car, even your body. What do we do? We go into a doctor. Lots of time spent on trying to, well, let's take a look at that broken arm or let's take a look mm -hmm. at that abscess or, you know, disease. Yeah. And disease. yet when it comes to the issue of things that can capture our soul or our mind, mm -hmm. we tend to just say, well, stop it. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't, t we don't go to the same degree of assessment to say, well, do we really understand what's broken and why it's broken in order that then we can move to a solution that is viable and actually uh, effective. Yes. And since we only have a few minutes left, Jay, I want to I move to that direction a little bit because one of the things that you mentioned is the significance of then meaningful relationships as it pertains to moving towards a healing uh, track or maybe a way to not, you know, to sort of reverse these effects or change the course moving forward. So what would you say about the impact of of meaningful relationships in your research and, and helping people who are struggling with pornography. Sure. Great question. 
question. So what, what my research found was that uh, there was a couple questions that I asked about when I'm struggling, I have someone in my life to talk to. Uh, when I'm struggling, I actually pursue someone to talk to. And what my research showed is that those who diligently pursued people to talk to when they were struggling with their sexual behavior, they were 22% less likely uh, to have significant pornography viewing. So what we found was that um, somewhere in the range of about 67% of uh, people who viewed significant levels of pornography, these were fours and fives on that scale, uh, did not have anyone in their life that they could talk to um, and therefore struggled greatly with pornography. But what we found is that about 45% of people um, struggled with significant porn viewing when they actually pursued someone really diligently to talk to. So what that suggests to us uh, is to say that when you are struggling, it's a really, really good idea to have people in your life that you can talk to about these matters. Um, but and, and I was going to say, doesn't that show then that the principle of accountability mm -hmm. is really, really good and strong, but maybe the way we've practiced it is not as effective? Right, because yes, the, exactly. the, the typical practice of accountability is one guy goes and just basically throws up all the things he's done wrong, and the other guy just says, "Well, stop it." Yeah. And what you're showing is that no, there needs to be a meaningful aspect of that relationship where there's knowledge of what the problem is and what maybe some mm -hmm. more of the specifics are, so that yeah. even when you get into things like prayer or trying to direct that person or help mm -hmm. them, you're yeah. much more effective because there's meaning to that relationship versus just a slap on the hand. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, I, I think that, that that's where the lack of purpose really ties in is that accountability relationships, if it's just kind of why did you look at that website or what am I supposed to do with this report, doesn't really kind of capture uh, the heart of people. So to be able to kind of say where where is purpose going on in your life or, you know, a lot of men uh, that I deal with as well, anger is often in the backdrop of their pornography use. So they might, you know, have a a relationship with their wife, they kind of make a bid for sex. And many times in these types of marriages, the wife will know that I need to have sex or there's going to be a type of anger that comes from my husband. So she has to make that decision of saying, do I comply or do I say no? And if I say no, there's usually going to be some type of anger that that gets escalated. Yeah. And so a lot of times with these men, after their wife says no, they might actually go and pursue pornography later on that night or later that day. And so in the, you know, purity culture, if we're only seeing it as a matter of lust and we're not also addressing within accountability, like there's a lot of anger in the background of your pornography use. How can we actually be accountable to those themes as well? That's when I think we, we can get way more surgical and um, just fine-tuned of what accountability looks like because there's some people that are dealing with a lot of futility there's some people that are dealing with a lot of anger and then my research also showed that there is uh, some of the most significant porn viewers uh, men and women uh, had eight percent more likely to have histories of childhood sexual abuse in the background as well and so again it's accountability can't just be a stop it lust stop your lust as you've said so well we really have to look at the context of what people's lives are and to be radically contextualized to those themes if accountability and relationship is going to be effective. Wow, that is good stuff. And there's obviously way more here than we can 
talk about. And so let our listeners know um, when the book is going to be released, how they can either pre-order or get information on that, and we'll make sure that this information is also on our website. But how can people get more info on this research and the book? Sure. Um, so the book comes out September 4th, 2018, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. Um, and then my website is jay-stringer, S-T-R-I-N-G-E-R.com. And there's a tab there on that's just called book, I believe. And you can download a free chapter of that now if you prefer. Um, and then there's also links to pre-order it there as well. Yeah. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being with us. I uh, really appreciate what you've done and, and the research that you're providing that I think is going to help many counselors, many pastors, many folks that are in this area of ministry to be able to be way more effective in, in ministering to people who are just dealing with what you call unwanted sexual behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so thanks again for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. It's such a gift to be here. Yeah, and listeners, we're uh, we're going to be uh, putting all that information on our website so that you can uh, be able to access that. And I really want to encourage you to uh, get in line to to pre-order that book. And uh, again, listeners, we're grateful for you and look forward to having you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.